Book fourteen, part one of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume five, by Francois René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book fourteen, part one. When the swallows near the moment of their departure, there is one that flies away first to announce the approaching passage of the rest. Mine were the first wings that preceded the last flight of legitimacy. Did the praises with which the newspapers loaded me charm me? Not in the least. Some of my friends tried to console me by assuring me that I was on the point of becoming Prime Minister, that this party stroke so frankly played decided my future. They thought they saw in me an ambition, of which I did not possess the very germ. I do not understand how any man who has lived but eight days with me can fail to have perceived my total lack of that passion, a very lawful one for that matter, which enables one to push through a political career. I was ever on the watch for the occasion to retire. If I was so devoted to the Roman embassy, that was just because it led to nothing, and because it was a retreat in a blind alley. Lastly, at the bottom of my conscience, I had a certain fear of having already driven opposition too far. I was forcibly about to become its bond, its centre, and its object. I was frightened of it, and this fear increased my regrets for the tranquil shelter I had lost. Be this as it may, much incense was burnt before the wooden idol that had climbed down from its altar. Monsieur de Lamartine, a new and brilliant light of France, wrote to me on the subject of his candidature for the Academy, and ended his letter thus. Monsieur de la Noue, who has just been spending a few minutes with me, told me that he had left you occupying your noble leisure in raising a monument to France. Each of your voluntary and courageous disgraces will thus bring its tribute of esteem to your name and of glory to your country. This noble letter from the author of the Meditation Poétique was followed by one from Monsieur de Lacretel. He, in his turn, wrote, What a moment they choose to outrage you, you the man of sacrifices, you, the man to whom fine actions come as easily as fine works. Your resignation and the formation of the new ministry had appeared to me in advance, in the light of two connected events. You have accustomed us to acts of devotion, as Bonaparte accustomed us to victory, but he had many companions, whereas you have not many imitators. Two very literary men, both writers of great merit, Monsieur Abel Remusat and Monsieur Saint-Martin, alone at that time had the weakness to rise up against me. They were attached to Monsieur le Baron de Damas. I can imagine that people are a little irritated by men who despise places. That is one of those pieces of insolence that cannot be endured. Monsieur Guizot himself deigned to visit me in my abode. He thought he might overcome the immense distance which nature had set between us. On accosting me, he said these words full of all that he owed to himself. Monsieur, things are very different today. In the year 1829, M. Guizot had need of me for his election. I wrote to the electors of Lycia, and they carried him. M. de Broglie thanked me in the note that follows. Permit me to thank you, monsieur, for the letter which you have been good enough to address to me. I have made the right use of it, and I am convinced that, in common with all that comes from you, it will bear fruit, and salutary fruit. For my part, I am as grateful to you as though I myself were concerned, for there is no event with which I have more closely identified myself, nor which arouses in me a keener interest. The July days found M. Guizot a deputy, and the result was that I am partly the cause of his political rise. Sometimes heaven hearkens to the prayer of the humble. M. de Polignac's first colleagues were Messieurs de Beaumont, de la Bourdonnais, de Chabrol, de Couvoisier, and de Montbel. On the 17th of June, 1815, at Ghent, I had been waiting on the king, when I met at the foot of the stairs a man in a frock-coat and muddy boots, who was going up to his majesty. By his lively expression, his finely shaped nose, his beautiful, soft, adder-like eyes, I recognised General Beaumont. He had deserted Bonaparte's army. The Comte de Beaumont is a meritorious officer, skilful at extricating himself from difficult situations but one of those men who, when placed in the front rank, see obstacles without being able to conquer them. They are made to be led, not to lead. He is fortunate in his sons, 
and Algiers will leave him a name. The Comte de la Bourdonnais, formerly my friend, is certainly the most disagreeable personage that ever lived. He lets fly at you the instant you approach him. He attacks the speakers in the chamber, as he does his neighbours in the country. He cavils over a word, just as he goes to law about a ditch or a drain. On the very morning of the day on which I was appointed foreign minister, he came to tell me that he was breaking with me. I was a minister. I laughed and let my male termagant go about his business. Laughing himself, he looked like a thwarted bat. Monsieur de Montbel, at first minister of public instruction, replaced Monsieur de la Bourdonnais at the interior when the latter resigned, and Monsieur de Guénon-Ronville followed Monsieur de Montbel at the ministry of public instruction. Men were preparing for war on both sides. The ministerial party launched ironical pamphlets against the representatif. The opposition organized itself and spoke of refusing to pay taxes in the event of a violation of the charter. A public association called the Breton Association was formed to resist the administration. My fellow countrymen have often taken the lead in our later revolutions. Every Breton head has something in common with the winds that vex the shores of our peninsula. A newspaper set up with the avowed object of overthrowing the old dynasty came to excite men's minds. A handsome young bookseller, Sotelet, pursued with suicidal mania, had several times felt the longing to make his death useful to his party by some bold stroke. He was charged with the business part of the Republican sheet. Messieurs Thiers, Minier, and Carrel were its editors. The patron of the National, Monsieur le Prince de Talleyrand, did not put a sou into the cash-box. He was content to defile the paper spirit by adding to the common fund his quorum of treason and rottenness. On this occasion I received the following note from Monsieur Thiers. Monsieur, not knowing whether the service of a new paper will be performed with exactness, I send you the first number of the National. All my collaborators unite with me in begging you to consent to regard yourself not as a subscriber, but as a gentle reader. If, in this first article, the object of great anxiety to me, I have succeeded in expressing opinions that meet with your approval, I shall feel reassured and certain of being in the right road. Receive, monsieur, my homage. A. T. A. I shall return to the editors of the National. I shall tell how I have known them. But I must at once place Monsieur Carrel on one side. Superior to both Messieurs Thiers and Minier, he had the simplicity to look upon himself, at the time when I became connected with him, as coming after writers whom he excelled. He upheld with his sword the opinions which those penmen laid bare. While these men were making ready for the contest, the preparations for the Algerian expedition were being completed. General Beaumont, the Minister for War, had had himself appointed to the command of that expedition. Was it his intention to escape responsibility for the coup d'état which he felt coming? That was likely enough to judge from his antecedents and his craftiness. But it was a misfortune for Charles X. Had the general been in Paris at the time of the catastrophe, the vacant portfolio of the war office would not have fallen into the hands of Monsieur de Polignac. Before striking the blow, presuming that he would have agreed to it, Monsieur de Beaumont would doubtless have assembled the whole of the Royal Guard in Paris. He would have got ready money and the necessary provisions, so that the soldiers should have wanted for nothing. Our navy, brought to life again at the Battle of Navarino, sailed from the French ports lately so abandoned. The roads were covered with ships which saluted the land as they moved away. Steamboats, a new discovery of man's genius, came and went, carrying orders from one division to the other, like sirens of the aide-de-camp of the Admiral. The Dauphin stood on shore where all the population of the town and mountains had gathered. After snatching his kinsman, the King of Spain, from the hands of the Revolution, he beheld the dawn of the day on which Christianity was to be delivered. Could he have believed night to be so near at hand? The times were past in which Catherine de Medici begged from the Turk the investiture of the Principality of Algiers for Henry III, not yet King of Poland. Algiers was about to become our daughter and our conquest, without anybody's permission, without England's daring to prevent us from taking that emperor's fort which recalled Charles V and the change in his fortunes. It was a great joy and a great happiness to the assembled French spectators to greet, with Bossieret's greeting, the generous vessels, ready to break the slaves' chain with their prows, a victory increased by the cry uttered by the eagle of Meaux, 
when he announced the future success to the great king, as though to console him one day in his tomb for the dispersal of his dynasty. Thou shalt yield or fall under that victor, Algiers, rich in the spoils of Christianity. Thou saidst in thy heart of greed, I hold the sea under my laws, and the nations are my prey. The swiftness of thy ships gave thee confidence, but thou shalt see thyself attacked in thy walls like a ravenous bird which one hunts amid its rocks and in its nest, where it shares its booty among its young. Already thou art releasing thy slaves. Louis has shattered the irons under which thou art loading his subjects, who are born to be free under his glorious empire. The astonished pilots cry beforehand, Who is like unto Tyre? And yet she kept silence in the midst of the sea. O oh, splendid words! Could you not retard the crumbling of the throne? Nations proceed towards their destinies, like certain of Dante's shades, they cannot possibly be arrested, even in good fortune. Those vessels which carried liberty to the seas of Numidia were carrying away the legitimacy. That fleet under the white flag was the monarchy getting under way, sailing from the ports where St. Louis embarked when death called him to Carthage. O slaves delivered from imprisonment, they who have restored you to your native land have lost their country. They who have saved you from eternal banishment are banished. The master of that huge fleet has crossed the sea on a bark as a fugitive, and France can say to him what Cornelia said to Pompey, It is indeed the work of my fortune, not of thine, that I see thee now reduced to one small ship, where thou hadst wished to go before the breeze with five hundred sail. Had I not friends among that crowd which on the beach of Toulon followed with its eyes the fleet setting sail for Africa? Did not Monsieur Duplessis, my brother-in-law's brother, receive on board his ship a charming woman, Madame Lenormand, who was awaiting the return of the friend of Champollion? What came of that flight executed in Africa, executed at a single swoop? Let us listen to Monsieur de Penhon, my fellow Breton. Not two months had elapsed since we saw that same banner wave in front of those same shores, over five hundred ships. Then sixty thousand men were impatient to go to unfurl it on the battlefield in Africa. Today a few sick, a few wounded, painfully dragging themselves along the deck of our frigate, formed its only retinue. At the moment when the guard took up arms, according to custom, to salute the flag as it was hoisted or lowered, all conversation ceased on deck. I uncovered with the same respect that I should have shown to the old king himself. I knelt within my heart before the majesty of great misfortunes, of which I was sadly contemplating the symbol. The session of 1830 opened on the 2nd of March. In the speech from the throne the king was made to say, If culpable manoeuvres should raise in the way of my government obstacles which I cannot, or rather, which I will not anticipate, I shall find the means of overcoming them. Charles X uttered these words in the tone of a man who, habitually timid and gentle, happens to find himself in a passion and excites himself with the sound of his own voice. The more forcible the words were, the feebler appeared the resolutions behind it. The address in reply was drawn up by Messieurs Etienne and Guizot. It said, Sire, the Charter consecrates as a right the intervention of the country in the discussion of its public interests. This intervention renders the permanent accord between the political views of the government and the wishes of your people, the indispensable condition of the regular march of public affairs. Sire, our loyalty, our devotion, condemn us to tell you that this accord does not exist. The address was voted by a majority of 221 against 181. An amendment was moved by Monsieur de Logeril to do away with the phrase relating to the refusal of concurrence. This amendment obtained only 28 votes. If the 221 had been able to foresee the result of their vote, the address would have been rejected by a huge majority. Why does Providence not sometimes raise a corner of the veil that covers the future? It gives, it is true, a presentiment to certain men, but they do not see clear enough to make sure of their way. They fear to make a mistake, or, if they venture upon predictions which are accomplished, no one believes them. God does not push aside the cloud from the background in which he acts. When he permits great evils to take place, it is because he has great plans, plans extending over a general plain, unrolled in a deep horizon beyond our view. 
and beyond the reach of our short-lived generations the king in his reply to the address declared that his resolution was unchangeable in other words that he would not dismiss m de polignac the dissolution of the chamber was resolved upon messieurs de peronnet and de chanteloz replaced messieurs de chabrol and couvoisier who resigned m capel was appointed minister of commerce they had a score of men around them capable of being ministers they might have sent for m de villel again they might have taken m casimir perrier and general sebastiani i had already proposed the two latter to the king when after the fall of m de villel the abbe frecinou was told to offer me the ministry of public instruction but no they held capable men in abhorrence in their fervour for nullity they sought as though to humiliate france for the smallest thing she had to put at her head they had dug up m guernon de ronville who however was the bravest of the unknown band and the dauphin had besought m de chanteloz to save the monarchy the decrees dissolving the chamber summoned the district electoral colleges for the twenty third of june eighteen thirty and the departmental colleges for the third of july only twenty-seven days before the death of the elder branch the parties all exceedingly excited drove everything to extremes the ultra-royalists spoke of giving the crown the dictatorship the republicans dreamt of a republic under directorate or convention the tribune the organ of the latter party appeared and went beyond the national the great majority of the country was still in favour of the legitimate monarchy but with concessions and enfranchisement from court influences every ambition was aroused every one hoped to become a minister storms hatch insects those who wished to force charles x to become a constitutional monarch thought they were right they believed the legitimacy to be deep-rooted they had forgotten the weakness of the man the royalty might be driven the king could not it was the individual that ruined us not the institution the deputies of the new chamber arrived in paris of the two hundred and twenty-one two hundred and two had been re-elected the opposition numbered two hundred and seventy votes the ministry a hundred and forty-five the crown party was therefore lost the natural result would have been the resignation of the ministry charles x was stubbornly determined to defy everything and the coup d'etat was resolved upon i left for dieppe at four o'clock in the morning on the twenty sixth of july the very day on which the ordinances appeared i was in fairly good spirits delighted that i was going to see the sea again and i was followed at some distance by a terrible storm i supped and slept at Rouen without learning anything regretting that i was not able to visit saint ouen and kneel before the beautiful virgin in the museum in memory of raphael and rome i arrived at dieppe the next day the twenty seventh at midday i went to the hotel where monsieur le comte de boissy my former secretary of legation had engaged rooms for me i dressed and went to call on madame Recamier. she occupied an apartment whose windows looked out on the sands i spent a few hours in talking and watching the waves suddenly hyacinthe appeared he brought me a letter which monsieur de boissy had received telling with great praises of the issue of the ordinances a moment later my old friend ballanche entered he had come straight from the diligence and held the newspapers in his hand i opened the monitor and read the official documents without believing my eyes one more government which deliberately flung itself from the towers of notre dame i told hyacinthe to ask for horses in order to set out for paris again i climbed back into my carriage at seven o'clock leaving my friends in anxiety it is true that for a month past people had been murmuring something about a coup d'etat but no one had taken any notice of the rumour which seemed absurd charles x had lived on the illusions of the throne a kind of mirage is formed around princes and it imposes upon them by displacing the object and making them see chimerical landscapes in the sky i took away the monitor with me so soon as it was light on the twenty eighth i read re-read and commented on the ordinances the report to the king which served as a preamble struck me in two ways the observations on the drawbacks of the press were just but at the same time the author of those observations displayed a complete ignorance of the actual state of society no doubt ministers to whatever shade of opinion they have belonged have since eighteen fourteen been harassed by the newspapers no doubt the press tends to subdue the sovereignty to force the royalty in the chambers to obey it no doubt during the last days of the restoration the press listening only to the dictates of its own passion disregarding the interests and the honour of france 
attacked the Algerian expedition, enlarged on the causes, the means, the preparations, the chances of failure. It divulged the secrets of our armament, instructed the enemy of the state of our forces, enumerated our troops and vessels, and even indicated the point selected for the disembarkation. Would the Cardinal de Richelieu and Bonaparte have brought Europe to the feet of France, if the mystery of their negotiations had been thus revealed in advance, all the halting-places of their armies set forth? All this is both true and hateful. But the remedy? The press is an element till lately unknown, a force formerly unheard of, now introduced into the world. It is speech in the shape of a thunderbolt. It is the electricity of society. How can you prevent its existence? The more you aim at compressing it, the more violent the explosion. You must therefore bring yourself to live with it, as you live with a steam engine. You must learn to use it while making it safe, either by gradually weakening it by common and domestic usage, or by gradually assimilating your manners and laws to the principles which will henceforth govern humanity. One proof of the powerlessness of the press in certain cases is derived from the very reproach which you made against it in regard to the Algerian expedition. You have taken Algiers, in spite of the liberty of the press, in the same way as I had caused the war with Spain to be waged in 1823, under the hottest fire of that liberty. But what is not to be endured in the report of the ministers is that shameless pretensions namely that the king has a power pre-existent to the laws what then is the meaning of constitutions why deceive the nations with sham guarantees if the monarch is able at will to alter the order of established government and yet the signatories of the report are so firmly persuaded of what they say that they hardly quote article fourteen to which i had long been prophesying that they would confiscate the charter they recall it but only for memory and as a superfluity of right of which they had no need. The first ordinance established the suppression of the liberty of the press in all its parts. This is the quintessence of all that had been elaborated during the last fifteen years in the dark closet of the police. The second ordinance reforms the law of election. Thus the two first liberties, the liberty of the press and electoral liberty, were torn up by the roots, and that not by an iniquitous and yet legal act emanating from a corrupt legislative power but by ordinances as in the days of the king's will and pleasure and five men not lacking common sense were with unexampled levity precipitating themselves their master the monarchy france and europe into a whirlpool i did not know what was happening in paris i was hoping that a resistance without overturning the throne would have obliged the Crown to dismiss the ministers and recall the ordinances. In the event of the triumph of the latter, I had resolved not to submit to them, but to write and speak against those unconstitutional measures. If the members of the diplomatic body exercised no direct influence upon the ordinances, they favoured them with their wishes. Absolute Europe abhorred our charter. When the news of the ordinances reached Berlin and Vienna, where for twenty-four hours men believed in their success, Monsieur Ancillon exclaimed that Europe was saved, and Monsieur de Metternich displayed unspeakable delight. Soon, having learned the truth, the latter was as much dismayed as he had been overjoyed. He declared that he had been mistaken, that public opinion was decidedly liberal, and he was already accustoming himself to the idea of an Austrian constitution. The nominations of councillors of state following upon the ordinances of July throw some light upon the persons who, in the antechambers, gave their assistance to the ordinances, either with their advice or their composition. You there see the names of the men most opposed to the representative system. Was it in the king's own closet, under the monarch's eyes, that those fatal documents were drawn up? Was it in Monsieur de Polignac's closet? Was it in the meeting of ministers alone, or assisted by a few anti-constitutional pudding-heads? Was it under seal, in some secret sitting of the ten? That those decrees were minuted by virtue of which the legitimate monarchy was condemned to be strangled on the bridge of size? Was the idea Monsieur de Polignac's alone? Perhaps history will never tell us. On arriving at Gisors, I learnt that Paris had risen, and heard alarming things said, which proved how seriously the charter was taken by people throughout France. At Pontoise, 
they had still more recent but confused and contradictory news at herblay there were no horses at the post-office i waited nearly an hour they advised me to avoid saint-denis because i should find barricades there at coubevoie the postilion had already left off his jacket with the fleur-de-lis on the buttons they had fired that morning at a calash which he was driving in paris through the avenue des champs-elysees in consequence he told me that he would not take me by that avenue but that he would make for the barriere du trocadero to the right of the barriere de l'etoile this barrier gives a view over paris i saw the tricolor flag waving i judged that it was a case not of a riot but of a revolution i had a presentiment that my role was about to change that having hurried back to defend the public liberties i should be obliged to defend the royalty here and there clouds of white smoke rose among blocks of houses i heard some cannon shots and musketry fire mixed with the droning of the tocsin it seemed to me that i saw the fall of the old louvre from the top of the waste upland destined by napoleon for the site of the palace of the king of rome the spot of observation offered one of those philosophical consolations which one ruin carries to another my carriage went down the hill i crossed the pont d'iena and drove up the paved avenue skirting the champ de mars all was solitary i found a picket of cavalry posted before the railings of the military school the men looked sad and as though forgotten there we took the boulevard des invalides and the boulevard du montparnasse i met a few people on foot who looked surprised to see a carriage driven post as at an ordinary time the boulevard d'enfer was obstructed by felled elm trees in my street my neighbours were glad to see me arrive i seemed to them a protection for the quarter madame de chateaubriand was both pleased and alarmed at my return on thursday morning the twenty ninth of july i wrote madame Recamier at dieppe a letter prolonged by postscripts thursday morning twenty ninth july eighteen thirty i write to you without knowing whether my letter will reach you for the post no longer goes out i entered paris amid the booming of guns the rattle of musketry the clanging of the tocsin this morning the tocsin is still sounding but i no longer hear any firing it seems that they are organizing themselves and that resistance will continue until the ordinances are repealed there you see the immediate result without speaking of the definite result of the act of perjury the blame for which at least in appearance the ministers have allowed to fall upon the crown the national guard the polytechnic school all have taken part in the business i have seen no one yet you can imagine in what a state i found madame de chateaubriand people who like her have seen the tenth of august and the second of september have remained under the impression of terror one regiment the fifth of the line has already gone over to the charter monsieur de polignac is certainly most guilty his want of capacity is a poor excuse ambition for which one has not the talent is a crime they say that the court is at st cloud and ready to leave i do not speak to you of myself my position is painful but clear i shall betray neither the king nor the charter neither the legitimate power nor liberty i have therefore nothing to say or do but to wait and weep for my country god knows now what is going to happen in the provinces already they are talking of an insurrection at rouen on the other side the congregation will arm the champs and the vendee on what small things do empires depend an ordinance and half a dozen stupid or unscrupulous ministers are enough to turn the most peaceful and flourishing country into the most disturbed and unhappy country the firing is recommencing it appears they are attacking the louvre where the king's troops have entrenched themselves the suburb in which i live is beginning to rise in insurrection they speak of a provisional government with general gerard the duc de choiseul and monsieur de lafayette at its head this letter will probably not leave paris having been declared in a state of siege marshal marmont is commanding in the king's name he is said to be killed but i do not believe it try not to alarm yourself unduly may god protect you we shall meet again friday this letter was written yesterday it could not be sent all is over the popular victory is complete the king yields on all points but i fear they will not go far beyond the concessions made by the crown i wrote to his majesty this morning for the rest i have a complete plan of sacrifices for the future which pleases me we will talk of it when you are here i am going to post this letter myself and to stroll through paris the ordinances dated twenty fifth july were published in the monitor of the twenty sixth their secret had been so profoundly kept that neither the marechal duc de raguse 
who was major general of the guard on duty, nor M. Mongain, the prefect of police, had been taken into confidence. The prefect of the Seine heard of the ordinances only through the monitor. The same was the case with the Under-Secretary of State for War, and this in spite of the fact that it was those several officials who disposed of the different forces of the army. The Prince de Polignac, who held M. de Beaumont's portfolio ad interim, concerned himself so little with this trifling matter of the ordinances that he spent the day on the 26th presiding over an adjudication at the war office. The king left on a hunting party on the 26th before the monitor had reached St. Cloud and did not return from Rambouillet till midnight. At last the Duc de Raguse received this note from M. de Polignac. Your Excellency is aware of the extraordinary measures which the king in his wisdom and in his love for his people has thought it necessary to take for the maintenance of the rights of his crown and of public order. In these important circumstances, His Majesty relies on your zeal to ensure order and tranquillity throughout the extent of your command. This audacity displayed by the weakest men that ever lived against the force that was about to pulverize an empire can be explained only as being a sort of hallucination resulting from the counsels of a wretched set which was no longer to be found at the hour of danger. The newspaper editors, after consulting Messieurs Dupin, Odilon Barreau, Bart, and Mary Lou, resolved to bring out their impressions without authorization, in order to compel their seizure and to plead the illegality of the ordinances. They met at the office of the National. M. Thiers drew up a protest which was signed by 44 editors and which appeared on the morning of the 27th in the National and the Tom. In the evening, a few deputies met at M. de la Borde's. They agreed to meet again the next day at M. Casimir Perrier's. There appeared for the first time one of the three powers that were to occupy the scene. The monarchy was in the Chamber of Deputies, the usurpation at the Palais Royal, the Republic at the Hôtel de Ville. Crowds gathered at the Palais Royal in the evening. Stones were thrown at M. de Polignac's carriage. The Duc de Raguse, having seen the King at St. Cloud on his return from Rambouillet, the King asked him the news from Paris. The stocks have fallen. How much? asked the Dauphin. Three francs, answered the Marshal. They will go up again, replied the Dauphin, and everyone went away. The day of the 27th began badly. The King invested the Duc de Raguse with the command of Paris. This was relying on bad fortune. The marshal came to install himself at the staff office of the guard on the Place du Carousel at one o'clock. Monsieur Mongain sent to seize the printing presses of the National. Monsieur Carrel resisted. Messieurs Minier and Thiers, thinking the game lost, disappeared for two days. Monsieur Thiers went to hide in the Montmorency Valley with a Madame de Courchon, a relation of the two Messieurs Bequet, of whom one had worked on the National the other on the Journal des Débats. At the Tom, the matter assumed a more serious complexion. The real hero of the journalist is incontestably M. Coste. In 1823, M. Coste was managing the Tablette Historique. One of his collaborators, accusing him of having sold that paper, he fought a duel and received a sword thrust. M. Coste was presented to me at the Foreign Office. Discussing the liberty of the press with him, I said, Monsieur, you know how I love and respect that liberty. But how would you have me defend it to Louis the Eighteenth, when every day you attack royalty and religion? I beg you, in your own interest, and so as to leave me full strength, to desist from undermining ramparts which are already three parts demolished, and which really a man of courage ought to blush to attack. Let us make a bargain. Do you cease falling foul of a few feeble old men whom the throne and the sanctuary are hardly able to protect? In exchange I give you my own person." Attack me day and night. Say anything about me that you please. I shall never make a complaint. I shall appreciate your legitimate and constitutional attack on the minister, so long as you leave the king out of it. Monsieur Coste has retained a grateful memory of his interview with me. A parade of constitutionalism took place at the office of the Tom between Monsieur Baud and a commissary of police. The Attorney-General issued forty-four warrants against the signatories to the protest of the journalists. At two o'clock, the monarchical faction of the revolution met at M. Perrier's, as had been agreed upon the day before. They came to no conclusion. The deputies adjourned to the morrow, the 28th, at M. Audrey de Puyraveau's. M. Casimir Perrier, a man of order and wealth, did not wish to fall into the hands of the people. He continued still to cherish the hope of an arrangement with the legitimate royalty. He said sharply to M. de Chonin, 
you ruin us by departing from lawfulness you make us give up a superb position this spirit of lawfulness prevailed everywhere it showed itself at two opposite meetings one at m cadet gassicourt's the other at general gorgot's m perrier belonged to that middle class which had constituted itself the heir of the people and the soldier he had courage stability of ideas he flung himself bravely across the revolutionary torrent to damn it but his life was too much taken up with his health and he was too careful of his fortune what can you do with a man said m Decaze to me who is always examining his tongue in a looking-glass the mob increased in size and began to appear under arms the officer of the gendarmerie came to inform the marechal de raguse that he had not enough men and that he feared lest he should be driven back then the marshal made his military dispositions it was half-past four in the evening of the twenty-seventh before orders reached the barracks to take up arms the paris gendarmerie supported by a few detachments of the guard tried to restore the traffic in the rue richelieu and saint honore one of these detachments was assailed in the rue du duc de bordeaux by a shower of stones the leader of the detachment refrained from firing when a shot from the hotel royal in the rue des pyramides decided the question it appeared that a certain mr folks who lived at this hotel had taken up his gun and fired at the guards from his window the soldiers replied with a volley at the house and mr folks fell dead with his two servants this is the way in which those english who live safe and sheltered in the island go to carry revolutions to other nations you find them in the four corners of the world mixed up in quarrels with which they have no concern so long as they can sell a piece of calico what care they about plunging a nation into every kind of calamity what right had this mr folks to shoot at french soldiers was it the british constitution that charles x had violated if anything could stigmatize the july fighting it would be that it was begun by a bullet fired by an englishman the first fighting which began the day's work of the twenty seventh a little before five o'clock in the evening ceased at nightfall the gunsmiths and sword-cutlers gave up their arms to the mob the street lamps were broken or remained unlighted the tricolor flag was hoisted in the darkness on the towers of notre dame the seizure of the guard-houses the capture of the arsenal and the powder magazines the disarming of the fixed posts all this was effected without opposition at daybreak on the twenty eighth and all was finished at eight o'clock the democratic or proletarian party of the revolution in blouses or half-naked was under arms it was not sparing of its misery or its rags the mob represented by electors whom it chose out of different bands had succeeded in having a meeting called at m cadet gassicourt's the party of the usurpation did not yet show itself its head hiding outside paris did not know whether he should go to st cloud or to the palais royal the middle class or monarchical party the deputies deliberated and were unwilling to be drawn into the movement m de polignac went to st cloud and at five o'clock in the morning on the twenty eighth made the king sign the ordinance placing paris in a stage of siege on the twenty eighth the groups formed again in greater numbers already the cry of liberty forever down with the bourbons was mingled with the cry of the charter forever which was heard on every side they also shouted long live the emperor long live the black prince the mysterious prince of darkness who appears to the popular imagination in all revolutions memories and passions had come down upon the crowd they pulled down and burned the french arms they hung them to the ropes of the shattered street lanterns they tore the badges with the fleur-de-lis from the guards of the diligences and the postmen the notaries removed the escutcheons the bailiffs their badges the carriers their stamps the court purveyors their coats of arms those who but lately had covered the napoleonic eagles painted in oil colours with the fleur-de-lis of the bourbons in distemper needed only a sponge to wipe away their loyalty nowadays one effaces gratitude and empires with a few drops of water the marechal de raguse wrote to the king that it was urgent that methods of pacification should be taken and that the next day the twenty ninth would be too late a messenger had come from the prefect of police to ask the marshal if it was true that paris had been declared in a state of siege the marshal who knew nothing about it was astonished he hurried to the president of the council there he found the ministers assembled and m de polignac handed him the ordinance because the man who had trodden the world underfoot had laid towns and provinces under martial law charles x thought that he could imitate him the ministers told the marshal that they were coming to establish themselves at the headquarters of the guard no orders having arrived from st cloud at nine o'clock in the morning on the twenty eighth when it was no longer time to hold everything but to recapture everything 
the marshal ordered the troops which had already shown themselves in part on the preceding day to leave barracks no precautions had been taken to send provisions to the carousel the headquarters the bakehouse which they had forgotten to have sufficiently guarded was carried by the mob Monsieur le duc de raguse a man of intelligence and merit a brave soldier a clever but unlucky general proved for the thousandth time that military genius is not enough to overcome civil troubles the first come police officer would have known better what was to be done than the marshal perhaps also his intellect was paralyzed by his memories he remained as though stifled under the weight of the fatality of his name under the command of the comte de saint chamond the first column of the guards set out from the madeleine to proceed along the boulevards to the bastille no sooner had they started than the platoon commanded by m sala was attacked the royalist officer briskly repulsed the assault as they advanced the posts of communication left behind on the road too weak and too far removed one from the other were cut by the people and separated by felled trees and barricades an affray took place attended with bloodshed at the port saint denis and saint martin passing by the scene of the future exploits of fieschi m de saint chamond encountered numerous groups of women and men on the place de la bastille he called upon them to disperse distributing some money among them but the people persisted in firing from the surrounding houses he was obliged to renounce his intention of reaching the hotel de ville by the rue saint antoine and after crossing the pont d'austerlitz returned to the carousel along the south boulevards turenne acting on behalf of the mother of the infant louis the fourteenth had been more fortunate before the bastille then not yet demolished the column sent to occupy the hotel de ville followed the quai des tuileries du louvre and de l'ecole crossed the first half of the pont neuf took the quai d'orloge and the marché aux fleurs and reached the place de greve by the pont notre dame two platoons of guards effected a diversion by filing towards the new suspension bridge a battalion of the fifteenth light infantry supported the guards and was to leave two platoons on the marché aux fleurs there was some fighting as they crossed the seine on the pont notre dame the mob headed by a drum bravely faced the guards the officer in command of the royal artillery explained to the mass of people that they were exposing themselves uselessly and that as they had no guns they would be shot down without the smallest chance of succeeding the rabble persisted the guns were fired the soldiers streamed onto the quays in the place de greve where two other platoons of guards arrived by the pont d'arcol they had been obliged to force their way through crowds of students from the faubourg saint jacques the hotel de ville was occupied a barricade rose at the entrance to the rue du montant a brigade of swiss carried the barricade the rabble rushing up from the adjacent streets recaptured its entrenchment with loud shouts the barricade remained finally in the hands of the guards in all those poor and popular quarters they fought spontaneously without afterthought mocking heedless intrepid french giddiness had mounted to all heads glory to our nation has the lightness of champagne the women at the windows encouraged the men in the streets notes were written promising the marshal's baton to the first colonel who should go over to the people clusters of men marched to the sound of a violin it was a medley of tragic and clownish scenes of mountebank and triumphant spectacles one heard shouts of laughter and oaths in the midst of musket shots and the dull roar of the crowd across masses of smoke with foraging cap on head barefooted improvised carmen supplied with permits from unknown leaders drove convoys of wounded through the combatants who separated to let them pass in the wealthy quarters reigned a different spirit the national guards had resumed the uniforms of which they had been stripped and assembled in large numbers at the mayor's office of the first ward to preserve order in these engagements the guards suffered more than the people because they were exposed to the fire of invisible enemies in the houses others shall give the names of the drawing-room heroes who safely ambushed behind a shutter or chimney-pot amused themselves by shooting down the officers of the guards whom they recognized in the streets the animosity of the labourer and the soldier did not go beyond striking the blow once wounded they mutually aided one another the mob saved several victims two officers m de goyon and m rivaux after an heroic defence owed their lives to the generosity of the victors captain Kalman of the guards received a blow on the head from an iron bar dazed and with his eyes filled with blood he struck up with his sword the bayonets of his soldiers who were taking aim at the workmen the guard was full of bonaparte's grenadiers several officers lost their lives among others lieutenant noiro a man of extraordinary valour who in eighteen thirteen had received the cross of the legion of honour from prince eugene for a feat of arms accomplished in one of the redoubts at caldera 
Colonel de Plencelve, mortally wounded at the Pont Saint-Martin, had been in the wars of the Empire, in Holland, in Spain, with the Grande Armée, and in the Imperial Guard. At the Battle of Leipzig, he took the Austrian general Merfeld prisoner. Carried by his soldiers to the Hôpital du Gros-Cailloux, he refused to have his wounds dressed until all the other wounded of July had been treated. Dr. Larry, whom he had met on other battlefields, amputated his leg at the thigh. It was too late to save him. Happy those noble adversaries who had seen so many cannonballs pass over their heads, if they did not fall before the bullet of one of those liberated convicts whom justice has found again, since a day of victory in the ranks of the victors. Those galley-slaves were unable to pollute the national republican triumph. They prejudiced only the royalty of Louis-Philippe. Thus perished obscurely in the streets of Paris, the survivors of those famous soldiers who had escaped from the cannon of the Moscova of Lutzen and Leipzig. We massacred under Charles X those heroes whom we had so greatly admired under Napoleon. They wanted but one man. That man had disappeared at St. Helena. At fall of night, a non-commissioned officer in disguise came to bring orders to the troops at the Hôtel de Ville to fall back upon the Tuileries. The retreat was made hazardous because of the wounded, whom they did not wish to abandon, and of the artillery, which it was difficult to convey across the barricades. Nevertheless, it was effected without accident. When the troops returned from the different quarters of Paris, they thought that the King and Dauphin had come back also. Looking in vain for the white flag on the pavillon de l'Horloge, they uttered the energetic language of the camps. It is not true, as I have shown, that the Hôtel de Ville was captured by the guards from the people, and recaptured from the guards by the people. When the guards entered, they encountered no resistance, for there was no one there. The prefect himself had gone. This boasting weakens and casts a doubt upon the real dangers. The guards were badly engaged in tortuous streets. The line, at first by its show of neutrality, and later by its defection, completed the harm which plans, fine in theory but unfeasible in practice, had begun. The 50th Regiment of the line had arrived at the Hôtel de Ville during the fighting. Ready to drop with fatigue, they hastened to retire to the inside of the hotel, and lent their exhausted comrades their unused and useless cartridges. The Swiss battalion, which had been left on the Marché des Annaissons, was released by another Swiss battalion. Together they came out at the Quai de l'École and stood in the Louvre. For the rest, barricades are entrenchments in keeping with a Parisian character. They are found in all our troubles, from Charles IX to our own times. The people, says L'Etoile, seeing those forces disposed over the streets, began to be agitated and made barricades in the manner that all know. Many Swiss were slain, who were buried in a ditch dug in the enclosure of Notre Dame. The Duke of Guise passing through the streets all vied in crying loudly, Long live Guise! And quoth he, doffing his large hat, My friends, it is enough. Gentlemen, it is too much. Shout, Long live the King! Why do our barricades, which led to such mighty results, gain so little in the telling? while the barricades of 1588, which produced nothing, are so interesting to read of. This is due to the difference in centuries and persons. The 16th century carried all before it. The 19th century has left all behind it. Monsieur de Puyraveau is not quite the Balafre. While this fighting was continuing, the civil and political revolution followed the military revolution on parallel lines. The soldiers locked up in the Abbey were set at liberty, the debtors at Sainte-Pélagie escaped, and the political prisoners were released. A revolution is a jubilee. It absolves from every crime, permitting greater crimes. The ministers sat in council at the staff office. They resolved to arrest Messieurs Lafitte, Lafayette, Gérard, Marché, Salvet, and Audrey de Puyraveau as leaders of the movement. The marshal gave the order for their arrest, but when later they appeared before him as delegates, he did not think it consistent with his honour to put his order into execution. A gathering of the monarchical party, consisting of peers and deputies, met at Monsieur Guizot's. The Duc de Broglie was there, as were Messieurs Thiers and Minier, who had made their reappearance, and Monsieur Carrel, although he held different ideas. It was there that the name of the Duc d'Orléans was first pronounced by the usurpation party. Monsieur Thiers and Monsieur Minier went to General Sebastiani to talk to him of the prince. The general replied in an evasive manner. The Duc d'Orléans, he asserted, had never entertained such designs and had not authorised him to do anything. About midday on the same day, the 28th, the general meeting of the deputies took place at Monsieur Audrey de Puyraveau's. Monsieur de Lafayette, the leader of the Republican Party, had reached Paris on the 27th. Monsieur Lafitte, the leader of the Orléanist Party, 
had arrived on the 27th at night. He went to the Palais Royal, where he found no one. He sent to Nuit, the king in embryo was not there. At Monsieur de Priorvaux's, they discussed the proposal of a protest against the ordinances. This protest, which was of a more than moderate character, left the great questions untouched. Monsieur Casimir Perrier was in favour of hastening to the Duc de Ragues. While the five deputies selected were preparing to leave, Monsieur Arago was with the marshal. He had decided, on receipt of a note from Madame de Boine, to be beforehand with the delegates. He represented to the marshal the necessity for putting an end to the troubles of the capital. Monsieur de Ragues went to obtain intelligence of Monsieur de Polignac's. The latter, hearing of the hesitation among the troops, declared that, if they went over to the people, they were to be fired on like the insurgents. General de Tromelin was present at the conversation and flew into passion with General d'Ambrugiac. Then came the deputation. Monsieur Lafitte spoke. We come, he said, to ask you to stop bloodshed. If the fighting continues, it will carry with it not only the most frightful calamities, but a real revolution. The marshal confined himself to a question of military honour, maintaining that it was the duty of the people first to cease fighting. Nevertheless, he added this postscript to a letter which he was writing to the king. I think it is urgent that your majesty should avail yourself without delay of the overtures that have been made. Colonel Komirowski, aide-de-camp to the Duc de Raguse, was shown into the king's closet at St. Cloud, and handed him the letter. The king said to him, I will read this letter. The colonel withdrew and waited orders. Seeing that they were not forthcoming, he begged Monsieur le Duc de Durat to go to the king to ask for them. The duke replied that etiquette made it impossible for him to enter the closet. At last Monsieur Komirowski was sent for by the king, and told to enjoin the marshal to hold out. General Vincent, on his side, hurried down to St. Cloud. He forced the door which was denied him, and told the king that all was lost. "'My dear fellow,' replied Charles X, "'you are a good general, but these are things that you know nothing about.'" End of Book 14, Part 1